Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. This week, we are going over quick lessons learned from Tour de Romandie over the weekend, as well as some pre-Giro thoughts. We saw Simon Yates, who's one of the favorites of the Giro at the Vuelta Asturias this weekend with a very Simon Yates mixed bag of results there, which, which leave us no clear in figuring out who's going to win this year at Italia. That starts on Friday. We also got the Eschborn-Frankfurt one-day race, which was won by Sam Bennett, but relevant to the Giro, we saw Fernando Gaviria finish second to him there, who was on the mend from a broken collarbone sustained earlier this spring. So that was um, an interesting little peek into um, someone who could potentially be a factor in Giro sprints coming up late this weekend. And then I'll have Benji Nassen, who's a YouTube and Twitter sensation, as well as the host of the super successful Lantern Rouge cycling podcast. Um, I, this guy is one of the hardest working people in pro cycling. He has a very unusual background and entrance into the sport that he, he basically started gaming. He was playing pro cycling manager and became an expert in the sport via that. So we'll talk a little bit about his background and how he kind of wedged himself into, I think, one of the most important analytical voices in the sport right now and get his big picture thoughts on the Giro d'Italia. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the Beyond the Peloton newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out minimum once a week and a paid edition that comes out daily during Grand Tours, as well as covering every major race and breaking it down with helpful visual guides and short little video clips. All right, so on to Tour de Romandy. It's a funny race to talk about because everyone's focused on the Giro, who wants to care about Romandy, but I thought there was a few interesting things. The odd thing about Romandy is a lot of these guys are not going to race at the Giro, so it feels like a non sequitur right before one of the biggest races of the season, but I think it, it tells us quite a bit about what to expect this summer, specifically Alexander Vlasov absolutely crushing that final uphill time trial. He looked, I thought he looked extremely confident all week. Um, in retrospect, I'm really impressed that he didn't launch a suicide attack on the Queen stage that would not have gone anywhere into, uh, it looked like they were riding into a headwind and probably would have lost him time and lost custom energy that he could have expended in the time trial. Beyond that, he just looked incredibly powerful in that time trial, just like really clicking the gears over once he got to the climb and got his road bike, it was just like obvious. You could see like the power oozing off his pedal stroke. This is the Vlasov I, I fell in love with in the 2020 season and thought might be a contender for the Giro that year. He, at, at, he was at Astana though, he moved over to Bora this off season. I, I never really felt like he was confident at Astana. It never seemed to click. He's only won two stage races in his entire career and that's been since he's moved to Bora over the off season. The Volta Valencia earlier this year and then Romedy now. And he didn't just win this thing. He, he crushed it. He won a five-stage race by 50 seconds. Sure, there was two time trials, which, which helped someone like Vlasov, but to win a five-stage race by nearly a minute is, is, is really, really impressive stuff. Um, Rowan Dennis, who came into the stage as the leader, I, I, thought he would not, I, I thought he would fail to win this, but I thought it would be closer. He just absolutely fell apart, which is surprising for him. I mean, he's... 31, he's not the time trialist he used to be, but he still finished third in the Olympic time trial last August on a, on a pretty hilly course. So I thought he would, would really give Vlasov a run for his money here, but he just lost. He lost over two minutes, fell down to eighth on the GC from first. Really not a good outing for him. Um, I do think this kind of signals the end of, if you were reading like English language cycling media a few years ago, it was just like constant. Pieces about like Rowan Dennis is becoming 
a GC contender. Um, I think we've seen that experiment run to its end. I, I don't think that's happening. And in some ways, this is probably good for him, and, and especially his Yumbo team, because now he can just slot into a super domestique role. He was fantastic in that role at the 2020 Giro d'Italia. One of the reasons that Teo Gegenhart won that race. He, he can be so, so, so useful as a domestique. And this meltdown will probably, it allows them to deploy him in that manner without any type of pressure that he should be a leader. So while it's disappointing in many ways, this is probably the best thing for his team and in some way his, his own career. Simon Geschka finished third on the stage with a really, really impressive ride. I think he's 36 years old, moved over to Kofidis this offseason. This guy is absolutely flying. I mean, th there was really three riders in this time trial that were relevant. Vlazov, Gesh Simon Geschka, and Gino Mater finished all within 36 seconds of each other. The next closest rider is Damiano Caruso a minute and four seconds back. So there really was three riders in this and everyone else was, was just along for the ride. The fact that Geshka could get second here, I mean, he's absolutely flying and he's an amazing pickup for Kofidis who is, needs all the points they can get. They're in the midst of a relegation battle. Um, they're looking pretty good. They're scoring points at a rate of two to one to EFs. So if they keep this up, they're going to be fine. They're not going to get rele relegated. But most important to them, they haven't won. They're a French team. They haven't won a Tour de France stage since 2008. They need a Tour de France stage win. And Geshka looked, I mean, he looked incredible here. He could win. It's getting harder and harder for guys like him to win tour stages because there's fewer and fewer breakaway days. And it seems like every day is just the, the strongest riders in the race are at the front contesting the win. But with that ride, I mean, he proved that especially a second or third week medium mountain stage, he could absolutely win that. So great look for Kofidis going into the tour and they look like they have a, a rider that could like seriously contend for a stage there, which is huge for that team. Gino Mater finishes third on stage, jumps up to th second overall. Geshka slots in the third overall. That's also a great result for Geshka, just getting third in a race like this. But Gino Mater, he really impressed me at the 2021 Vuelta a España when he finished Fifth overall, he gets second overall here. I, I didn't really think he was, everyone was talking about Juan Ayuso. Everyone loves Juan Ayuso, the 19-year-old in UAE. And I'll talk about him in a second. He was actually, I thought, pretty good here, even though he um, fell off the podium and maybe disappointed in that time trial, even though I'd, I'd probably push back on that. He had a pretty good performance for a 19-year-old. But Mater just really jumped from way back in the field to, to finish second overall with an absolutely scorching time trial. I mean, Mater proves... You know, if he was going to the Giro d'Italia, you know, I, I don't think it'd be crazy to say that he would be in contention to win this. I guess he'll target the Vuelta, the Tour. Um, the, it's going to be tough for him at the Vuelta to win. There's, there's going to be some really, really top, top. There potentially could be both Pogacar and Roglic there. So a win is probably off the table, but he, he signaled he could podium a Grand Tour this year. You know, I wouldn't be shocked if he podiums at the Vuelta. Um, and then beyond this year, it's not crazy to imagine him winning a race like the Giro d'Italia. I was really impressed with Gino Mater and that his Bahrain team just keeps on ticking over these results. I mean, they went from terrible team before to 2021 season. Rod Ellingworth came in from, from Team Sky, Team Ineos to turn it around. They didn't have great results when he was running the team, but I think the structure he put in place has allowed them to, you know, they kind of have this freeform jazz type Writing style that probably didn't work with Rod Ellingworth's super strict um, planned racing style, but the structure, the back end structures Ellingworth put in place combined with that um, a little bit more freeform racing style has created a, you know, a soup that's working for them. They look amazing. They're one of the top teams in the sport right now. And, and Bora, the Bora team, just to, 
to touch on this, they win stage four with Sergio Hagita. It looked weird because he was sprinting against Alexander Vlasov, who was chasing him down with a bunch of other people behind him. Um, I thought that was a strange decision, particularly since Vlasov, I guess in theory, needed those time bonus seconds, even though that ended up not mattering. He just decided to crush the time trial and win by a bunch anyway, so it didn't matter. But Hagita comes over to him, comes over on him and almost crashes him out in the sprint. I, I assume Hagita just didn't see that he was there, but that was a really risky, risky strategy from Bora. But it means that they won stage four, they win stage five with Vlasov, and they win the overall. And then over at Ashbourne Frankfurt, the other World Tour race this weekend, they win that. So they go 4-4 four, four in World Tour wins over the weekend. That's pretty impressive. Um, I thought they had, had a little bit of a rough start to the season. Didn't look quite as, you know, I thought the, the, the past few years they've come in looking pretty ironed out. And I thought they looked like they had a lot of like kinks in the system this year. But they're clearly clicking on all cylinders going into the summer. And key for them is, you know, they lost Peter Sagan. They, they leaned on him for a lot of results, even if he wasn't winning a lot. He was finishing top 10 a lot. But the key thing here is Vlasov and Higita were not on the team last year or Sam Bennett. And those guys were responsible for all of their wins over the weekend. So the, these new riders coming in and winning is a great sign for them. All right, so we'll talk about Volta Asturias really quick. Simon Yates wins two of the three stages. That looks great. If you just just looked at that, you'd say, wow, this guy is flying heading into the Giro. He's like a plus 450 favorite for the Giro. He's only behind Richard Carapaz. Um, he had a pretty good Giro last year. So you're thinking, wow, well, this guy could win the Giro d'Italia. There's not a lot of time trial kilometers. This is perfect for Simon. Well, on stage two, he did crack and lose over like 11 minutes. Um, and even Sosa won the stage and then went on to win the overall. That's concerning. That's really concerning. He said it was from the heat. Um, last time I checked, Italy's pretty far south, and there can be some hot days in the Giro d'Italia. And they have two summit finishes in the south of the country. You know, that could be pretty toasty. It, that's pretty far south. So this is not a great, <laughs> a great sign especially from someone who we know he's good. We know he can climb with the best riders in the world. Like we saw him at Perignese. He was electric on that final stage. The big question about Simon is his inconsistency or consistency. He's very inconsistent. He's always struggled um, to manage his bad days. And this doesn't give me any, any confidence that he's over that. So if, if he's losing, and, and he's not just sitting up and like letting them ride away on stage two, like no GC contender comes out of hiding or from an altitude camp before a grand tour to get dropped like even if it's the right thing to do physiology wise no one wants that evil in their head so to speak and these guys are just so competitive like no one wants to get roasted by Ivan Sosa going into a major objective I do think it was kind of strange to even do this race as I say he probably came from an altitude camp I assume Richard Carapaz and Joao Almeida are at an altitude camp as we speak they're going to stay as high as possible before they have to go down to Budapest to race the Giro. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't love this. I just don't love it. I feel like that's a lot of unnecessary travel to get to the race. And I wonder if it's something that, like, is that an effort you could just replicate with a moto and some other riders at an altitude camp? I don't know. I don't, I don't love the decision. I didn't love the inconsistency. I wouldn't bet on Simon Yates to win the Giro d'Italia. But he'll probably win a stage or two. He looked pretty, pretty good when he was winning those stages at Asturias. So Ashbourne Frankfurt, one day race, little uh, confession time. I've actually never seen this race. This was the first time I watched it. Um, I have a soft spot for Frankfurt, like it. Uh, love the countryside around the city. So I sat down and watched it. Um, Sam Bennett won. That's big for Bennett. He used to be like, the, I'd say the best sprinter in the world in 2020. 
not been as good since, had some turmoil in his uh, professional life, to put it mildly. Gaviria finishes second. Um, looks good, but Gaviria did. He, there, he got third in a stage earlier at Romandy. I was a little confused because I thought it was against the rules. I didn't think you could drop out of a race and then race another race while the race you dropped out of was still in process. Um, but the thing is, on stage, it was stage two of Tour de Romandie. Gaviria gets third behind Ethan Hader. Vlasov almost beat him in that sprint. That right there, I was like, I don't know about Gaviria. You know, he, he crashed out of Omloop, um, suffered a broken collarbone. Not been great since then. I mean, he's just been coming back, starting racing. Um, th- this second is certainly bodes better than getting third and almost beaten by Vlasov in a sprint a week earlier. So... You know, he's showing signs of coming back. He still, I, he used to be a prolific Grand Tour stage winner, specifically at the Giro. He hasn't won a stage of the Giro since 2019, and that's his last Grand Tour stage win. So this, you know, gives me a little bit of confidence that he's on the way back. But even Gaviri at full strength, is that good enough to win a Grand Tour stage or a Giro stage in this case? Um, he's gotten COVID three times since 2020 and that must take a toll that's just a lot of time off with illness so who knows what to expect from him i would have liked to see him winning this um it's tough to judge that second to sam bennett because bennett is he back or did he just beat a soft field of sprinters um i'm not quite sure i do i i have liked phil bauhaus this year and he got fourth in that sprint so you know maybe that is a signal that gaviria and bennett are are on a good level at the moment um, so the Giro d'Italia starts on Friday in Hungary and Budapest. These foreign starts are always a little weird because they tend to withhold good stages or stages with any type of GC implications until they get back to the home country. Um, and, and I remember this starting with the time trial. I believe they changed it up because they had to delay this foreign start um, in 2020 due to COVID. Stage one is now an uphill sprint and it has like a 5K climb at 5% to finish it off. I, I would be shocked, Matthew Vanderpool does not win that stage. Um, I just don't see any way how that happens. But then stage two is a time trial. Um, I think it's through Budapest, but it finishes on a, on a two kilometer tricky climb. So we're going to see some GC gaps as soon as stage two. And then stage three is like a sprinter's delight. It's, it's a straight up sprint stage. Mark Cavendish is probably going to win that. And then they head back to Italy via Sicily on stage four for summit finish at Etna. So the first four stages of this race are, are pretty exciting. I'll probably release an episode after those first three stages because we get an extra rest day on Monday um, before the Aetna stage on Tuesday. All right, well, we'll get into our chat with Benji Nassen. Um, If you like Benji, you can follow him on Twitter at, at Benji Nassen and listen to him on the Lantern Rouge podcast. And he has a fantastic YouTube channel called Benji Nassen Gaming where he plays Pro Cycling Manager. It's wildly successful. He um, as you'll see, he's a very engaging, nice guy, super humble. Anyone can who can hold the attention of people on YouTube playing a video game is clearly a special person. All right, so let's get to that chat with Benji now. Benji, it's great to have you on. Um, you're, you were just explaining off mic that you're going to be on a Belgian TV show with close to a million viewers. You're like the biggest, <laughs> you are like a massive viral celebrity in cycling. Well, um, I, it's been amazing to track you down for this. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time. You're an amazing Twitter follower. If anyone's interested in cycling, you got to follow Benji on Twitter. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of background on your, I know you have a gaming background and then how you got into breaking down professional cycling via that. 
Yeah, basically what I currently do is that I'm co-host of the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast, which is covering more the racing and analysis aspect of the sport. And next to that, I've got my personal channels like my Twitter, for example, where I just spew out thoughts and people tend to either agree or completely disagree, which is a fun part about Twitter. <laughs> they can give their opinion and I can change my opinion based on what they say as well, because my opinions are not the law and definitely can change over time. And that's the beauty of Twitter, I dare to say there in that aspect. And then the third aspect is that I've got my personal YouTube channels, which are basically dead for about a month now because I haven't had the time to record or upload anything on them. And I feel bad for the people that tend to follow that then, but I'm going to try and get that back up and running in the coming ones as well. But how did I really get here? It's a, a long and non-traditional story, I dare to say, because I started following cycling in a non-traditional way because in 2005, back in the day, my mother came home with a magazine with a game attached to it, Pro Cycling Manager. And it's through that game, true to getting to know the riders in there, Obviously, I had known about Tom Bonin and so forth from the news and so forth, but I wasn't in-depth into cycling. And that game got me more and more into cycling. And over the years, I think until 2010, that started growing and growing and growing until we saw Contador versus Schleck on the Tourmalet in the Tour de France. And from that moment onwards, those days were, oh, I loved cycling and I was watching it every single year and all the biggest races. And that's how my, like, my love for the sport started. And I also, during those same years started following people on YouTube that started creating content about games. And therefore my inspiration started of like, what if I make content about that game pro cycling manager and try and make a bit of a story out of it. Let's try and make a smaller team, like a third division team in cycling, a big team that wins a zero three times, for example, like those zero to hero stories and try and make it a good storytelling so that it's just not only someone playing a video game and looking at it. It needs to be a, a good story for people to be interested in it. And that's what I did. And people started liking that over the years. And I've done that for like five years now, personally, as a hobby, really, throughout the entire way. Sure, I've earned money with it as, as a consequence of making those videos, but that's never been the goal of that because it's so niche, that game, that I wasn't expecting it to be a, a thing that I can live off at any point in my life. But that's how I got into like content creating when it comes to a pro cycling manager that game and how I eventually got into contact with my co-host uh, Lantern Rouge through a, a very silly uh, Instagram message. I don't know which who of us actually messaged first, but we ended up just connecting. And I think only three days later or something, we jumped in a Discord call and we, we started talking about potentially doing a podcast and the next day we recorded. So that's how that story started. And if, if anyone doesn't know, you guys, Lantern does amazing YouTube breakdowns of races. Um, also, like a new kid on the block, I would classify you both as like a new wave of, of cycling analysts who are in their sophistication, I would say, significantly better than whatever was there before. And you guys do a post-race podcast that comes out. It's insane how fast your podcast comes out after <laughs> races. Like sometimes, like, are they recording this before the race is done? Like, how is this possible? <laughs> so the the speed that you guys are getting that out is it's super impressive. Um, I listen, I, I, you know, if you're listening to this, you probably know I have a newsletter where I break down races. A lot of times I listen to your podcast to like figure out if I miss something. Like it's that fast and that comprehensive. It's you could almost just not the watch the race and listen to the Lantern Rouge podcast if you wanted to. But that's such an interesting point you bring up. You don't hear that in cycling a lot. Like I'm a big soccer fan, but I only know about it because I've played FIFA first. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who 
follows cycling, who's a professional cycling analyst and got into the sport via Pro Cycling Manager, the video game. <laughs> it's, I assume you, there's probably, I mean, cycling's a pretentious sport. I mean, specifically mm-hmm. in the US, I imagine Europe is the same. Do you get a lot of people who are just like, oh, well, this is like a gamer. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. Because you guys are having conversations at the level where I assume teams and team managers are, I mean, if they're smart, they're listening to you guys and changing things up based on your suggestions. Do you get any pushback based on your background? Yeah, certainly. There's people online that are like, oh, it's it's a guy that plays uh, video games or whenever I like put something on Twitter that is specifically like saying that a certain rider or a certain team should have done that or that instead, then sometimes there is, there's a reaction like, oh, this is not a PlayStation game, Benji. But like, I, I'm not really bothered by it. It probably even motivates me to do it even more and to be even more like trying to be good at what we do and trying to be as good as possible because there might be a, a point made there by a rider that says, oh, this is not a PlayStation game because perhaps they didn't have the energy for it and we didn't realize that while analyzing the race and so forth. And it's always good to like see that feedback and not instantly neglect it. Like look at it and say, are they right in some shape or form? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're just defending their own take, which I'm fine with. And as a consequence, we can better our own analysis. And if they learn from their mistakes, that's also good for their cycling. So I don't really mind from that aspect. And there's always going to be people. There's always going to be people that aren't necessarily a, a fan of the way I got into this sport and so forth. But that's not my problem, really. So they can do what they want, whatever floats their boat, and I'll uh, I'll float my boat the way I want it. That's how I go. <laughs> I love it. And you, you mentioned that, I mean, you've gone from, I feel like I've, I've found you through the Lantern Rouge podcast, which isn't that old. That started during Mm -hmm. the COVID season, if I'm not mistaken. And I, I don't know, tell me if I'm wrong. I feel like you guys have gone from like a niche. It's like, oh, these are two internet commentators. And then now, as you say, you're going to be on a Tour de France TV show in Belgium, which is like the home of cycling. That's a big deal to be on a Belgian cycling show. Is that, does it feel like it's been rapid to you or, or just being in it, does it feel kind of like a normal progression? It certainly feels rapid. And there's a combination of probably opportunities that were lucky to be shown towards me and me trying to manipulate my luck or trying to like prepare from months before to try and get something to work out later. It's it's like, it's a weird thing where some opportunities are going to show up in your front door and are going to be like, okay, this might actually be a good thing to do. And then sometimes you're like following the right people, talking to the right people to make sure you have opportunities later. But like in this specific example, I think we started July 2020 or August 2020. GP Plouet was our first in 2020 because we wanted to do one race before we got to the Tour de France of 2020. So it was all a bit fast suddenly because we had to do like, I think we got our idea the week before the Tour de France. So we only had one race to test it out. And it worked out because the conversion of people that tend to watch YouTube towards a podcast is not necessarily super easy because I think initially, while Lantern Rouge already had like a solid, what was it, 70,000 followers on YouTube, and I had around 13,000, something like that, you would expect that you'd instantly get like 5,000 people in. It's it's like 1,000, 2,000 the first time. Yeah. And it gradually starts building. And I think it took until the end of that Tour de France 2020 to get like a consistent basis of like following. And 
it's it's really intriguing how the initial year we didn't have video so it was all audio based it was completely just us talking into a microphone because i probably wasn't even comfortable being on camera yet like honestly like it's something self-confidence that has grown over the years and now i am very confident in doing so and that year i wasn't then therefore audio only we ended up growing into that and towards the end of the year i think yeah more and more people started listening and then last year we all all more than doubled our, our our listenership on the podcast. But then you start to realize that having a lot of listeners is great, but we got to make sure we can also communicate, communicate with the community still because the community feeling around the podcast is for me the most important part here. We want the people that are listening to feel like they're a part of something and not just listening to two people at the other side of the world that just give their take on something. And therefore, yeah, that's why I'm trying to be as active as possible on socials and so forth. And trying to get other people's takes on stuff as well. And perhaps uh, I learned from their takes as a consequence, but I've completely started ranting and I've forgotten completely what the point of the question was. So I'll throw it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. And I, no, I think you guys do a good job of like that community building. Um, do you see like, I, I hate this. I hate when people ask me this question, but I'm going to ask you like, what's what would be your future like your ideal future like are you doing this on tv or do you think that that tv's just like missed the boat on this you'll never get the type of engagement you're getting currently through traditional channels and that just youtube and the podcast are the way to like stoke ultimate engagement this is all a very good question what do i want from my future and it's weird because i've got a feeling that i'm very open to whatever shows up because Again, we started July 2020, a month earlier. I didn't know that I would remotely start a podcast a month later. So opportunities show up and opportunities can be used to try and have myself a, another future than I perhaps I'm thinking about right now. But based on what we've had the last few years, I, I've got a feeling that a lot of people might underestimate just how, yeah, how intriguing doing a podcast is. Like, I really enjoy this. And it's financially viable enough for me to survive. And if, for example, someone would ask me to replace it to be a TV commentator or something, I probably wouldn't do it because I, I prefer this over being a TV commentator. And yes, I might combine stuff that is external to that with the podcast in the future, but the podcast is my priority and trying to get it as uh, far as possible. I think my personal future goals in the coming year would be that next to the podcast growing as much as possible and yeah becoming more and more a thing in the future as well i'd like to see like my my personal like channels next to it like my youtube to be a bit more active so that i can reward the people that were with me for those five years on the gaming channel that they still have content from me there and i feel like the last month of kind of i kind of let them down i feel bad about that and next to that, I've also got that second YouTube channel, which is just called Benji Nassen. The other one is called Benji Nassen Gaming because I'm a very original man when it comes to names. And <laughs> it's on good that, branding. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> and like the, the normal channel, the Benji Nassen one, I want to like kind of start creating more real life content, like going to races, doing vlogs to races, interviewing people by the side of the road, funny interviews, like interviewing riders, stuff like that, like a bit all combined, obviously not the same stuff that we do on the podcast because that would be a bit weird and would probably like <laughs> either people, yeah, people would choose one of the two and I'd love to have like people listen to the two and just have more content 
they can enjoy really. So I think my personal goal is just expanding my own contents and my own like, yeah, they call it brands, but I see it more as like my own personal uh, platforms on on YouTube and Twitter and so forth and like that. And yes, over the last three years now, two and a half years perhaps, or even two years even, it hasn't even been two years, I think. Um, it's weird because initially, like it's a it's an English podcast. So the people that I get into contact with are people that are in the English sphere of cycling, like TV commentators of Eurosport and so forth, stuff like that. Those are the initial people in the industry that you end up starting to talk to. But I've noticed that the last three-ish months, it seems like the podcast is also getting a bit more into like Belgium and Benelux because I'm starting to realize that a lot of like more journalists or like TV people from Belgium are starting to follow me there, which is, it's just intriguing to see how it's the other way around to a lot of podcasts in Belgium because they are Dutch. And as a consequence, they get connected with the Dutch uh, cycling industry a bit quicker. Did this answer remotely the question you asked? <laughs> no, it's good. And, and that actually, I, I was wondering about that. I mean, you're Belgian. You live in mm-hmm. Belgium, I assume. Yeah. And not an English speaking country, if people don't know. But you do a cycling, all your cycling content is in English. That's, it's like, I've always wondered about that. Like, how did you make that decision originally? I, I assume you just, the English language market is bigger than the Flemish market. So that works better for you. But it's very interesting how, yeah, there's potentially people in Belgium who don't follow your channels because mm-hmm. there, there must just be a whole Flemish speaking ecosystem of cycling yep. commentators. Yeah, certainly. And it's something that I might not have done that consciously at the start because that's sort of when it comes to the gaming channel, you know, I was like, how can I get as many people to listen? Yeah, in English. But it was also because I felt like it's weird. I, I'm much more comfortable talking in English online than I am in Dutch. And I don't know why I was able to talk English quite decently at the start. But if I listen to a video of like five years ago, it's such a difference. Like it's so noticeable and you hear the Flemish accent a lot more like five years ago than you do now when I speak. And it's intriguing how that has changed. And I think it wasn't necessarily the conscious decision of I'm going to do it in English to get as many viewers as possible onto my pro cycling manager content. (laughs) I think it's more related to the fact that I felt less judged when I did it in English than I did it in Dutch. And as a consequence, I, um, yeah, I ended up continuing that. And then obviously when I meet an Australian guy, I can't tell him, okay, perhaps we should do the podcast in Dutch. That's probably not going to work out. Um, but I think it's just from the start, I started in English and I kept doing it and I'm not terrible at it. So it works out. And I was actually nervous. I, last week I had a Flemish podcast that I needed to be on as a one-time guest. And I was genuinely nervous about being there because I don't know yeah, how my Flemish is going to come over to people that listen to me in English and so forth. And I'm also from like West Flanders. So we talk like farmers, like legit. And we are farmers in West Flanders. Like 90% is probably has probably has a farmer in, in his like family. We get joked about in Belgium for sounding, yeah, sounding weird when we talk. And when you compare the dialect of West Flanders to like everybody else in Flanders, it's like, what language are these people speaking? So when I go to like a podcast in Antwerp, which is like the center of, of uh, Flanders, then you're like, okay, 
<laughs> let's try and talk proper Dutch for this time around. <laughs> and I can say that I'm much more comfortable talking in English than I am in talking proper Dutch, which is <laughs> weird to say, but it's true. Oh, that's, that's, I know it's, if I speak to like a British person, I'm like, I'm a cow. I feel like a cowboy. I'm like, this is, I have a ridiculous <laughs> accent. <laughs> so I know exactly what you mean. I, I feel like just as Americans, we have this view of Belgium or, or even Holland where it's like you walk around and everyone's like, everyone's watching every race. You know, it's like the home of cycling. Mm-hmm. Like, is that like, what is Because you go to Germany and like, it feels like everyone's riding a bike and like, no one has any idea what's happening. Like, no one cares about pro cycling, but everyone's into cycling. What's it like in Belgium? Is it, are most of the people that follow the races not cyclists themselves or just like regular people who you know, spectate cycling and everyone's plugged in, or is that kind of not a realistic view of of the culture? I think that people might actually overrate the cycling like aspect of Belgium because the most popular sport here is not cycling. It's actually like football, which is your soccer. And I still hate you for that, for naming it soccer, but Hey, (laughs) I guess you didn't decide that, but um, yeah, football is like the number one sport here, hundred percent. And there's so many people following football and cycling's, popular yes and i think it's still not necessarily one of the largest sports here and it's weird to say that because people outside of belgium will be like oh it's the home of cycling and yeah but i feel globally that cycling is still a relatively niche sport like yes a lot of people ride their bikes and so forth but i've got a feeling that there's so many sports out there that are so much bigger than cycling and therefore perhaps it looks like belgium is the home of cycling because it looks like we're fanatics about it. And there's certainly a lot of people in Belgium that are fanatics when it comes to cycling, myself included. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think people might still overrate that a tiny bit. But perhaps it's because I speak to so many foreigners instead of like Flemish people that I might not even know that the majority is actually cycling fans because I like I spent 75% of my time speaking to English people or like to people in English and yeah, perhaps I might just uh, have a, a closed view towards Belgium myself. <laughs> I, I always wonder about this where like Julian Alaphilippe, big, he's a, probably a big person in your mm-hmm. life, big person in my life. You know, it's a very famous yep. cyclist. And I often wonder, like, if I go to Dusseldorf and I ask a person on the street, like, do you know who Julian Alaphilippe is? They might yep. not know who he is. Like, it, it does feel like there's a a big barrier like cycling does not break through to the mainstream yeah. even in europe where it absolutely should it seems wild to me as you're saying it's it must be super niche if even the most I mean, maybe peter sagan broke through to the mainstream yeah. but yeah you know we're past the like is wout van like wout van art's very good um do you think is he like a mainstream name in in belgium yeah certainly i think about 95 percent of the people here are know who I an artist but then there was this guy Sergei at my previous work like the work I did before I went full-time into podcasting I was a, a programmer and my colleague Sergei he uh has Ukrainian roots if I recall and he ended up speaking to me about what I do in cycling and I said well this guy Wout van Aert, and he was like who <laughs> he did not know who Wout van Aert <laughs> was really and I was jarring. like oh god yeah it's uh mind-boggling but in the end, I think, yeah, people have different interests and I can't blame other people for liking other things than we do, but we'll convert them to the cycling religion anyway at some point. 
and this is a crazy story. I, I was going to ask you about this. So until I feel like until just a few months ago, you were doing this part time, like you were working full time as a programmer and then doing a daily, at least during the racing season, a daily podcast, multiple YouTube channels. Were you sleeping like three hours a night? Like how you were the hardest working person in pro cycling. It was crazy. Like how, how was your lifestyle handling that? Oh, it was, uh, it was not good. <laughs> it was not good. <laughs> like I, I did sleep enough, like at least like six hours, seven hours. So that's doable. Now I sleep eight hours, which is probably the healthier part, but, uh, <laughs> I certainly was sleeping. I've, I do think that I never really had free time and I never really had like last year, my social life was just non-existent because I was focusing so, focusing so hard on the fact that I had to do my work. And then next to that, the podcast. And I also don't want to be that guy that well, I've got this podcast now. I'm going to put all my time in that and I'm going to neglect my actual work. Now I can't do that. I feel bad then when I did that. So I wanted to do my job until the last day properly at that job. And I also like, I was thinking about doing it full time for a while already, I think for the entire year before I decided to actually do it. And obviously there's also the financial aspect. I want to make certain that my income for 2022 would be enough to survive if I made that decision, which is luckily has become. So um, yeah, it's, it's an intriguing part that I, yeah, it was just a life choice. I, I decided to focus hundred percent on career and zero percent on everything next to it. And perhaps I might've lost a friend by accident that way, which I feel bad about, but yeah, in the end, that's, that's what I chose. And I'm not regretting a, the way I, the way I went in that aspect. And I think there's like, I'll throw it on another uh, part here. Uh, I think there's like a misconception to how Lantern Rouge and myself are like working together on stuff because we actually work together on like solely the podcast. So Lantern Rouge has his YouTube channel, which is the Lantern Rouge YouTube channel. And I've got my Benji Nassen YouTube, Twitter stuff. And we collaborate on the podcast. But for example, he also has his website, the Lantern Rouge website and so forth. Like, the website, all the articles that come onto it, his YouTube channel, the content that comes on that YouTube channel, I've got nothing to do with that. Yeah, I helped a bit when it comes to setting up the initial website because of my web developer history. But like a lot of people think that I'm also involved with that and then tag me to thank me for making a video on his channel. But I've got nothing to do with that. I don't deserve the credit for anything he does. And arguably, he works a lot more this year than I do. I can 100% say that. How have you liked the new... I guess, routine without the full-time job. Do you, I assume that must be a lot better. Like you can kind of watch races while you're not working your full-time job and think about it. And do you think your analysis has gotten better or just your, your lifestyle has improved from that? I think a combination of both. I think analysis will become better over time anyway, because like the more races you analyze, the more like data you have to like base your analysis of and the more like tactics you've seen and you've seen how they play out more if you watch more races. And therefore, just that aspect increases the analysis 100%. Next to that, the lifestyle has gotten a lot better, I dare to say, because I obviously have had a, a bit of a weight issue in the last couple of years. And I try to like get into that exercising more the last year and so forth. And I, during last year, like I was trying to fit like a ride in or like a, a run in between like all my work and I, I couldn't find anything really. And like my weight stagnated and it was too high. And I wanted to get that lower to try and get into a, like, I wanted to get fitter. Like, let's be honest about it. And I think 
29th of December is when I properly started. And I think the 2nd of January was when I ended up going full time. Ever since then, I've, I've done a lot more exercise myself because I, I didn't want to like take the free time that I got from going full time and put it back into working by doing more for the full time thing. I wanted to do something that I get better out of. And my work-life balance was completely broken last year. I wanted to fix that. And I, I think I made the good decision of choosing to invest at least an hour a day into like exercising. And therefore I've lost like 11 kgs in the last, uh, in the last four months, which is actually insane to think about. I had the goal of losing <laughs> like 20 this year and yeah, it's a, a good progression there. Yeah. It's been cool to watch your fitness journey via Twitter with, I mean, Zwift is such an amazing tool for that. If you're busy, especially yeah. in the winter, I mean, we both live in the Northern hemisphere, like the winter's not fantastic. Like I, myself, I feel like last year got so out of shape just because yeah. it's so easy to push that off. It, it's really hard when you're following a sport so much to take time for yourself to stay fit. So the reason I ask, the reason you're here, we're, we're going to, we're going to do this. Wout Van Arter, Remco Evenepoel, who's, who's the better rider? Oh, I think currently <laughs> Wout Van Aert, future perhaps Remco. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I tend like at first glance, I tend to agree. And then you start going through everything Wout Van Aert's already accomplished. I feel like I don't like he just podiumed at Liège and Père Roubaix in the same yeah. year. I couldn't find anyone who had done that since 1975, since Eddie Merckx did that in 1975. That is like truly mind blowing. And then last year he wins a time trial sprint and mountain stage at the Tour de France. That's yeah. truly insane. So I feel like if Remco did that, they'd like shut the sport down. They'd be like, he's the best rider of all time. Like we can stop <laughs> racing. <laughs> and like, obviously Remco, I mean, the, the win at Liège was amazing. Like kind of is tantalizing to think what he mm -hmm. could do if he was, I don't know. I mean, you're Belgian. I don't want to like disrespect quick step. They're a fantastic classics <laughs> team. I feel like there's a reason they've never really won any stage races in the history of their yeah. team. But you, yeah, you've imagined him if he was on it like a Yumbo and being properly managed as a GC rider and potentially a multiple time Tour de France winner. So I'm excited about his future. Do you think, do you think he can stay at quick step and really achieve everything that he has the potential for? I see the biggest weakness at quick step currently there their support for him in like climbing stages and so forth, because certainly they don't have the biggest budget in the sport. It's also not tiny either, but they tend to have the system where they've got lower contracts and like salary value, but with bonuses that are higher in those contracts. And as a consequence, that gets people excited about getting classics riders and so forth, because those are cheap. Outsider classics riders are a lot cheaper than, for example, people that are supposed to be in the mountain train in a grand tour because that's like above seven figures and it's difficult to get a proper mountain train with a budget that is that is the one of quick step as well and that's why the teams of yumbo ue and Ineos have such high budgets because the most expensive riders outside of like the actual superstars are the mountain domestiques a sepkus for example i'm pretty sure he's gonna be on a lot of money kwiatkowski von bale those type of riders sure von bale is also a a different type of rider next to a, a mountain domestic, but those are the type of riders that a team like Quickstep would need to have a kind of support at M. Quavenapool, for example, in Grand Tours. But next to that, he also still needs to like prove a bit more when it comes to his consistency in 
one week races and so forth. Like, I feel like it's weird. Remco is the most overrated and the most underrated rider, depending on who you ask, in my opinion, which is a weird thing to say because they're polar opposites, of course. Overrated in the sense that people are saying, oh, he's definitely going to win a Grand Tour. He's winning the Vuelta at the end of the year. There's always the possibility, but I feel like the chances are low at the moment of doing that, the winning the Vuelta at the end of the year, for example. Then people that underrate him are, for example, people that say, oh, he can't win LBL because he can't get up a steep climb. There's multiple ways to win LBL, like he has shown, for example, yeah. by attacking on Dut and using his strengths to his advantage. And I think there's just so much talk about this man. And it's it's kind of because of Belgian media. They hyped him up so much when he started winning in the junior years that I, I actually kind of feel bad for him sometimes. And yes, he's not the nicest guy on the bike sometimes. And I hate when he, for example, pushed Ben Turner in, what was it, Brabant Sapel. I didn't hate at that moment. That's something you shouldn't do as a rider. And I criticized him for that. But the man gets so much criticism that he also doesn't deserve that. Yeah, it's it's kind of, I I feel bad because I feel like under so much pressure, it's going to be hard to, to do something that people are going to say, wow, because he wins LBL and the initial reactions are 50% are very happy and find it awesome. And 50% are like, oh, come on, he won. Come on. It's only because he attacked earlier. It's because the teams behind him didn't ride fully behind him. Like, like there's always like this, this forward and backwards tension against and for him. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of pressure. And then you compare it to like a Kian Eitebrugge, the guy on Bora, also a talented Belgian, for example. And he kind of, he's kind of under the radar because he's not in a Belgian team. He went to Bora. He went to that Auto Eder Bayer uh, development team of Bora. And he's kind of worming his way up through the, uh, through the depths under the radar. And I think that's a much more healthy way of a youngster to get into cycling because I, yeah, I can't blame Remco for the fact that back in the day, there were so many interviews where he was just saying, oh, if there's like one Grand Tour, I would love to win at some point in my career. It's the Giro. And then a newspaper in Belgium, for example, pasted that on their newspaper. But Emko wants to win the Giro. Like, that doesn't mean the same thing. <laughs> and then people think he's arrogant, which he sometimes is, which I sometimes like because that makes some content. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. He's such a, a spoken about figure. I don't know. What's your take on Emko? Do you think that he's like, yeah, what do you think about him? Oh no, I mean you're you have a very, very balanced view. <laughs> now I'm embarrassed to share mine. I'm like, <laughs> I'll tell anyone I see, I'm at the post office, like Rimco's overrated. You don't understand. He's only won four <laughs> world tour races. But then if someone's like, oh, so he sucks, I'm like, no, no, he's great. Like oh, like an amazing rider. I just think he's overrated. Um I I I guess I'm turned off by his personality a little bit, just yeah. like the arrogance, but it, but yeah, probably the thing I'm bristling at the most is the hype from like this yeah. guy. I just don't like that type of, I feel like it's disrespectful to like, like let's say Tade Pogacar is winning the Tour de yeah. France. And then instead of like focusing on that, it's like, but this guy is going to be amazing. It's like, well, yeah, we'll see. Like he's very talented. Like winning the age best on the age at 22 is awesome. It also happened last year. Like you know, there's like, he's, he's in a fraternity of like young riders that are like truly spectacular. And like, I'm excited to see what he could do in the future. And like, obviously that Liege win was awesome and like deserves to be celebrated. He, I think he kind of outsmarted. I, 
probably my biggest sticking point is I don't think he's raced very smartly. Like the world's looked awesome. Like he's attacking from a hundred K out. That's a really dumb way to race. Same thing with the European championships last year. So to see him at Liège kind of putting it together tactically, it was like, it was cool where it's like, Oh, this guy could, could, could really win. Maybe not. As you say, I don't think he's going to win the Vuelta this year, but it's like, it was tantalizing to think what he could win in the future if he starts racing smarter. So I'm a big fan, and especially with Pogacar being so good, yeah. you want someone of a similar age that's super talented, so it's not like we're sitting around watching Tadej Pogacar win the next eight Tour de France's. Yeah. So <laughs> in that respect, I'm very excited that he's that he's here and, and racing well. I do think he needs to to leave. Like the fact that Quickstep had him leading out Philippe at the Basque Country, and then he loses the race by. I mean, imagine if he's not leading him out. Can he hold on to that group on the final climb? on the final stage like maybe maybe not but maybe you know that's or or if he doesn't go for that intermediate sprint before the climb how does that have an influence on his his strength on the climb for example like there's so many details in that race and i understand that they want to give alaphilippe the chances for the stage and it improves when remco is there to lead him out and i think that's also kind of an issue of just having two leaders that kind of need each other. Alaphilippe would support Remco in the mountains and then Remco would support Alaphilippe for those sprint finishes. And perhaps when it comes to an actual Grand Tour, they wouldn't do that. Perhaps it's maybe because it's a one-week race that they gave that a a go, I guess. Because, yeah, otherwise I, I agree that it definitely has its influence, but I'd also rather do it as a, as a DS in a race like that than, for example, at a Grand Tour. <laughs> that's, that's very true. And the, I, yeah, it's a good point about the inter- intermediate sprint. I have no idea what happened there. If that was something coming from the team car, or, absolutely that was not the right decision. If you've ever raced a bike before, <laughs> sprinting before you get to a climb is not going to help you. So I only I have a few minutes before my son wakes up. So I just want to ask you, who's going to win this Giro d'Italia? Giro d'Italia starts next Friday. You're going to be there at the start in Hungary, which is super exciting. I'm interested to follow along on that. I wish I was going to be there. Who's going to win this thing? Richard Carapaz is the big favorite. Simon Yates, I guess you could say, is a favorite. I, I don't trust him after the 2018 meltdown. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Honestly, I I could say the very boring answer that Carapaz is going to win. And I'd argue that if I was very rational, I'd definitely say that Carapaz is going to win. But last year, I was pro-Almeida, as in I said Almeida was going to win the Giro last year. And... He ended up having that very bad day initially on day four, which basically just completely threw away the strategy of of Quickstep to have like two leaders and not have the other work for the other because Almeida started working for Remco after that. And eventually Almeida was the strongest in week three. I'll I'll go on a limb and say that Almeida will, will win the Giro. And that's my heart saying it and not necessarily my brain. My brain says Carapaz, but my heart says Almeida and I don't know why. I completely agree. I feel like you and I were like conspiracy theorists for Joao Almeida. It's like, if you filter out the bad day, he actually was faster than Egan Bernal at the the Giro last year. He's so talented. I feel like he gets no respect for how... He's never finished lower than sixth in a a Grand Tour. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. amazing. It does seem like he always has a bad day. He's also very young. I, and that's another thing with... It's like, well, Remco is young, but wow, that guy sucks. He's 23 years old. It's like, well, he's very young too. I, yeah. I think he's probably the most talented of the contenders. 
Carapaz is Carapaz. The guy's a killer. Like, it's really impressive. Anytime that I think, like, man, he looks really out of shape. Like, I don't know if he can do this. Then I'll, like, win the Olympic road race. Like, he's yeah. an amazing racer. That <laughs> makes me worry a little bit for Joao, but I would love to see yeah. him put it together and, and, and win the Giro. Um, Miguel Angel Lopez, I, like, I feel like he has a huge Twitter, like, you know, Twitter is loves Lopez. But then if you actually go back and look at his results, he's the last time he won a stage race, any stage race was 2019. Like he's not, couldn't, I don't know. Did he, did something happen at the tour of the Alps? I was surprised he was not in GC contention in a five day mountainous stage race without a time trial. Like that makes me concerned about his zero prospects. Yeah, it was on, I think, stage two or something, or it was in the breakaway initially because the race exploded on the first climb. And then halfway the race, he dropped from that break when he was 14 minutes behind by the end of the stage. So not exactly the perfect outcome. And it seems like he always has a bad day either by himself or bad luck because I swear in the Giro 2018, he had a puncture on a climb that lost him like a minute or something the day that Carapaz did the coup on the race. And then, for example, on stage 20, he had that um, that spectator that crashed him and that he started punching, stuff like that. Like, there's always something that's going on with Lopez. And I guess that makes it intriguing. And you know that the most pure mountain stages are likely the ones he's going to do good at. So um, I'm looking forward to see him again. I just feel, find it a shame that he's not getting paid for what he's doing at the moment. <laughs> That is crazy. I yeah, I actually I forget to mention that and I forget about that. Yeah, that he's like doing this for free because they're not getting paid. <laughs> uh, Mika Landa, do you, he's another guy with a yeah. I feel like he's like Twitter's favorite writer. Yeah. Is he gonna do you think he's gonna do anything here or have we like seen the seen the best of Landa already? Uh, it's difficult to like guess because like I swear last year he started the Giro off quite well on that fourth stage before he crashed on day five. So if he didn't crash, he likely would have been able to compete for a podium in the way that Caruso did, for example. So I see him being able to compete for top five is if he's at that form again, but it's not been that outrageous either his form this year. So I'm like, I don't know what to expect from Landa and he's a candidate that we're going to be discovering in the first week of the Giro, I think, whether he's on point or not, because... I generally can't guess it from this point onwards if he's going to uh, have a, an amazing run at the Giro Eater because Bilbao was also in that squad. They've got multiple options and would have loved to also see Caruso there. That trio in that race would have been yeah, intriguing, I but know. would be a lot of leaders. But then again, if one crashes out, they've got multiple left in. Oh, and they will crash out. <laughs> I guarantee <laughs> one of those guys will crash out. I feel like my unscientific take on Landa is I feel like no matter what race he's in, he'll always get fourth. Like he was that 2020 Tour de France was like the best riders in the world. He's fourth. Yeah. So you're like, okay, he can win a Giro and then he'll yeah. just finish fourth. Like he just rides to the fourth pace place wherever he is. Um, last question, Tom Dumoulin, what's going on there? Like the time trialing has been great since he returned from his mini break. Mm -hmm. Does not seem to be able to climb anymore. Like, do you have any theories on, on what's happening there? I've got absolutely no clue what's going on there. I think that he's definitely not, having the results that his salary is telling him to. He also came back from that mental health thing, which, yeah, he, he came back from that and he actually did well in like Bing Bang Tour last year, near the end of the year, and then had another crash, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, but, that's um, right. Yeah, but like, I don't know what to expect from him. They added some almond, I think, to the parkour, to the, to the team is what I saw on Twitter the other day. 
They already had Tobias Foz there. I think Foz is the most talented of those three, certainly, based on the current. So obviously Dumoulin was talented back in the day, certainly, but he's kind of over it for me personally. And um, I hope to see Tobias Foz do something great, but I don't see Yumbo competing for GC, like perhaps for a top five with Foz or something, but not for like the top three steps. Yeah, I'm a big Foss, Foss believer myself. I feel like this is what's so good about you, just kind of internet born analyst is like, you're just like, well, Dumont's done. Let's throw him to the side. Whereas like the mainstream media, like, like I'm not saying that in a mean way, like Tom, love yeah. you. I'm sure you're a great person. But as a cyclist, as a contender for Grand Tours, probably not a contender anymore. And like the mainstream media, like they'll be talking about Tom Dumont and Eurosport for the next 10 years. Like they're probably still talking about Chris Froome's going to win the Tour de France. Like, you know, it's like this inability to, to like embrace the new generation, like, like Foss, what you're saying. I just, it really frustrates me with when I'm watching like mainstream channels and they're like, Dumoulin's done. Like, let's, let's focus <laughs> on guys who are actually going to win this race. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's a benefit that we have with what we do is like a lot of what you see is access journalism where they try and keep their access while covering the race and so forth. So they can't step on everybody's toes or anybody's toes really because they want to not burn bridges with people. And like, I'm enjoying what I'm doing 100% and I'd love to do it for as many years as possible. But if I step on someone's toes, well, then I step on someone's toes. Like, I don't, like, it's not like I'm hunting a job on, on TV or something 100%. So, like, I don't really care that much if someone doesn't end up liking me because I'm just giving my takes and perhaps my takes are sometimes wrong. They're certainly wrong multiple times a, a week, but they're my takes. And if people like it, they like it. If people don't like it, they don't like it. And that's, uh, that's how it flows really. And I, um, I might cancel myself over that in a few years where I say something <laughs> really mean about a writer, which I probably didn't mean as much as it sounded when I put it on Twitter, apparently. But, um, in the end, I'm enjoying what I'm doing and I give my takes on cycling. And if people like it, they like, it. and if they don't, they don't. And I don't want to roast riders. That's like one thing I don't want to do. I try to not like completely roast riders unfoundedly. Like I want to see their side of the story as well. And I will laugh sometimes when a Guillaume Martin goes into a descent with a jacket open or something. I'll make jokes about that, but that's a joke. And perhaps it might not be liked by that rider in question, but yeah, that's, that's, that's their problem. eh? <laughs> you could zip the jacket up. <laughs> it's like yeah, we're just exactly. giving him useful advice. Well, Benji, th it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for, for taking the time to come on and, and good luck at the upcoming Giro. I'm really excited Thank to you. see how you guys cover it on the ground. It's going to be really interesting. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Benji. I will talk to you early next week about the first few stages of the Giro d'Italia. Have a great week and enjoy the racing. Bye.